to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Uh, good morning. Uh, um, I'm Andrew, it's not a typo. Uh, it's not supposed to be Andre Tan. Um, <laughs> The, 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 so my sermon title today is going to be We Cannot But Speak and it's not a reflection of the state of me being under compulsion to speak today <laughs> in that Andre asked me to speak and then I cannot but speak but I hope it will be a, the, the prophetic conclusion um, to the state of the church that we cannot but speak about the gospel um, after we walk out of this room and um, actually truth be told I would rather not speak I'm much more comfortable sitting there making jokes um, and laughing uh, with the preacher. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I experienced um, a, a preacher's dilemma. And the preacher's dilemma, I feel, is this. is that a lot of times we feel like we need to have arrived at the place before we can speak about it, especially in a place like a pulpit. And evangelism is something that I think very few people can comfortably say that they've arrived at that place. And sometimes in my life, I feel like I've seen better days um, in evangelism. I've seen better days in witnessing for people. But um, So when, when I first uh, was asked to speak about this, I was somewhat reluctant. Because I'm like, oh, it's not like you know people are getting saved around me, left, right, center, like in the day of, days of Acts. And it's, it's a bit of a dilemma there. But I felt the Lord speaking to me and was saying that, well, you are not completely holy but yet you still speak and value holiness. You're not completely walking out in signs and wonders, but because we know it's true in Scripture, that's why we speak of it. And we're faithful to the truth even when our lives don't fully manifest it. And it's only when we speak of the truth and we constantly say, this is the Word of God, this is the standard to which the Word of God is. My life doesn't measure up to it, but I'm faithful to it. And it's challenging each other to say, can we live according to this? And it's with that spirit that I speak today that I've not arrived at evangelism, um, but I see myself as washing the feet of the church. Um, In scripture, it says, how beautiful are those, the feet of those who bring good news. And the conduit to which um, the Lord has chosen to bring good news is his body, the church. And today I feel like my role is to wash your feet, to prepare you to bring the good news. Um, And in that sense, so I'm a servant. Um, I'm not a preacher, this is my first time preaching in church, but as I was preparing um, with this preacher's dilemma, and also I felt like it took so much um, a burden on the person coming here to deliver um, this message that I couldn't help but well up in gratitude to the people who week after week faithfully preach the gospel, encounter these dilemmas, and still stand faithful to say, I'm going to wash the feet of the church. Yeah. So in the same vein that Andre said, don't undermine my authority, I'm going to show appreciation for both PD and Andre and I say thank you. Thank you for all these years, week after week, how much it took on you to preach the gospel faithfully to us. So the second thing that I want to say is that um, I can't give you um, anything that is from myself. And it's only the Holy Spirit. That can... And today, my, my picture of success um, is something that I cannot achieve. 
It's only when the Holy Spirit comes and gives us the compassion for the lost that this sermon would have worked. There is no other way in which this would be successful. And, and I'm just praying that, um, that the Holy Spirit would just give us something um, that's from Him. Yeah. So I'll just pray. Yeah, Father, I pray that you would prepare your church today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us your heart, that you awaken our heart to be enlarged and to take on the desires, the burdens, and the pains that you feel in your heart towards the loss. I pray that you will give us the bonuses in the days of Acts, that your Holy Spirit will come upon us, that we will be witnesses for you, that we would be attesting to the truth, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, the exclusivity to the gospel with bonus, and that you would stretch out your hands and you would validate this message with signs and wonders. And I pray that our lives will bear fruit, that when they look at our lives, it will be congruent with the message that we preach. Yeah, so we ask that um, for every heart here, including mine, that you would give us um, what is from you. Yeah, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to start by telling you a story. It's a story of the first time I prayed um, with someone to receive Christ. And that person was a stranger. So I'm going to go back. It's many years ago. And this was when I was about 14 years old. And I was seated in, in my secondary school classroom. And I would preach the gospel to my classmates on my left and to my right, every day. But they were not receptive. They thought I was a bit weird. Um, and they weren't very impressed because I, I wasn't very eloquent or whatever. Okay? So um, it didn't work. And in my heart, I was like, oh, I was feeling um, so frustrated. Like, why is it that I'm sharing the gospel, but they're not receptive? So I wanted to learn. So the first opportunity that I had was an evangelism conference. So there was this American evangelist, this guy called David Albritton, brilliant guy, came over to Singapore to equip um, Singaporeans on how to share the gospel. And this guy is crazy. So he, he would preach to people um, on the plane, in cinemas, in the gas station, and he would see people getting saved all around. But the thing that struck me wasn't how gifted he is, but his whole message was how simple it is to be a witness for Jesus. And I remember I was sitting there and my heart was burning. Um, and the, the only thing that I could think of was, I need to find a non-Christian. <laughs> but, and I was looking around as an evangelism conference. So obviously everybody's a Christian. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to talk to these people. Find me a non-Christian that I can share the gospel to. So um, I go out and um, we, uh, there was a break in the, in, the, in the conference and there was a cafe. And I was looking around and the, everyone was Christian. Everyone was wearing the text evangelism conference. I was like, oh, I don't want to talk to you. Um, and the only person who wasn't wearing the tag was the person selling the coffee to everyone who was in the conference. And uh, I really wanted to share the gospel. And it, it felt like a really good idea until I saw a person to share the gospel with. And then I'm like, oh, this is a bad idea. <laughs> and suddenly I remember I was like, I don't want to do it anymore. Um, but I felt like the Holy Spirit was just impressing me then that I had to do it. And it was like Isaiah, it was like a fire shut up in my bones. I felt like I was compelled. I had to do it. Um, it was like, you know, like you had to go to the toilet, that kind of feeling. Yeah. So I was pacing around. I was feeling really uncomfortable. I was like, oh, I have, I have to go, but I don't want to go. So it's, it's that wrestling within me. Um, and um, I struggled a lot. So I couldn't sustain a normal conversation with all my friends. So I went to the bathroom because I felt maybe that would help. So I go to the bathroom. Uh, it didn't help. I still felt like there was a fire inside of me that I had to. Um, and, and I wrestled for really long. And then I finally decided to go. So I was like, okay, I'm going to share the gospel with this person. 
I haven't been effective before. This person is a stranger. The chances of success are slim, um, to say the least. So I go up and I say a very faith-filled prayer as I'm walking up. I say, God, if I screw up, it's on you. <laughs> so I walk up. I walk up to uh, the person and I remember two things. The first thing is as I was walking towards the counter, it felt like a really long walk, I started to tremble. And I started to become really nervous. And the second thing was, I'm pretty sure I forgot what the gospel was <laughs> as I was walking there. So I was like, okay, this is not looking good. The miraculous thing was when I got there and I started talking to her, all the nerves suddenly just went. And I stopped trembling. And I was able to just share the gospel like clearly with her. And I probably talked to her for about like 40 minutes over the counter. Sometimes it was a bit awkward because uh, people buy the drink. And then you go, oh. <laughs> so um, after that, she, I remember at the end of that, um, I said, oh, um, so you say you believe? And then she was like, yeah, I believe. Um, and I asked, do you want to pray with me to receive Jesus as your personal savior? And she was like, yes. And I was like, wait, what, really? <laughs> it was like, unreal. I remember I was probably as happy, if not more happy than she was. Uh, and, and this is the crazy thing. The crazy thing is, um, by now, um, my friends who are all in the evangelism conference kind of noticed. It's like, oh, he's sharing the gospel with this person. So they, they were praying. And then um, after we prayed, I turned back and I was walking back to the table. And I remember as I turned, immediately I started to tremble again. And I started to feel the same nerves that I had as I was walking up. And I believe that was the anointing of God, that it wasn't me. It wasn't my natural giftings. It wasn't my ability. But God intervened in a way because he had someone whom he wanted to know him. And he wasn't going to let my inability or my fear get in the way of the gospel. Um, and, and from that, I learned that if God can use a donkey to speak, God can use me as well. Um, and God can use all of us. So, uh, I share this message not because, so I'm, I'm not a pastor, I'm not this like tele-evangelist, I'm the guy who sits there in shorts. Uh, <laughs> uh, but being a witness is for every Christian. Uh, this, is, this is something that's really core to my belief, and it's not just for the evangelists. Um, in fact, it's core to our faith that it is completely incongruent to say that I'm a Christian, but I don't share my faith. Right. Um, William Temple, the 98th Archbishop of Canterbury, he said this. He said, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those outside of it. And the question is this, what benefit does the church have to people outside of it? So we do a lot of things. We do a lot of good things. But can I say that the primary purpose, the primary benefit that the church has is this. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes to the Father except by me. There is no other teacher who says, I am the way. Every other teacher comes to show the way. He says, I stumble upon a philosophy or a teaching and a certain life that you should live and I'm here to teach you that. Jesus breaks all of that mold and he comes and says, I'm not here to teach you something. I am the truth for you to learn and to know. I am the way by which you go to the Father. I'm not teaching you to do good works so you can reach the Father. I am the way. I made the way. And it's exclusive in its content. It says, no one goes to the Father except through me. There are relativists out there today who say that there's no absolute truth, that all roads lead to God. Jesus is clear in his proclamation, says, no one goes to the Father except through me. If you want to talk about exclusivity, then someone who denies this is actually calling Jesus a liar. 
And then we need to have a conversation about who is, who is telling the truth. It doesn't help to sidestep the issue and say, oh no, everyone's right. Yeah. Um, in 1 John 5, it says this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son of God has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal salvation. And that, I say, is the primary benefit of the church. The church exists to bring this message, to embody this message, but to testify to this message that all may believe. Um, And so it's core. So my purpose today is actually just to give you permission, what I believe it's in the core of your being, a desire to be a witness to the gospel and to see your loved ones saved. And I want to give you the permission today, just as the Lord gave me permission through that encounter many years ago, that I can be a witness. Not just that guy, that guy, that guy over there, but me. I can be a witness to my family, to my friends. So, uh, before that, so as a kind of really long preamble, <laughs> what is a witness? So witness is a legal term, right? It's a legal term in, in, a, in a court of law. So I did my due diligence and I searched Supreme Court of Singapore, responsibilities of a witness. And so I started to read, as, as stated by a court, what is a witness? It says several things. Um, can we have the next slide? And the first thing is this. The first responsibility of a witness is to testify to what you have seen. The, the court says, as a witness giving evidence, your duty is to answer the questions put to you by the lawyers, the prosecutors, and the judge truthfully. You should not alter your evidence to benefit anyone. It's about being true and authentic and testifying to what you have seen. In the Bible, it says uh, in, in Acts 4, in Acts 4, shortly after Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon Peter and the rest of the apostles, and they start performing signs and wonders. And they go to the beautiful gate in the temple, and they heal a man with a, with a shriveled arm, a crippled arm. And then, the, and then um, they, everyone was amazed, and they preached the gospel. Um, and the, the, the religious leaders call in Peter, haul them in, and charge them not to preach the gospel. And the, the, the critical thing is this. Peter boldly told this to him. He says, whether it's right in sight of God, um, to listen to you or to God, you must judge. But for us, we cannot but speak of what we have seen or heard. And the question today is, what have we seen or heard? And it's a responsibility to witness. The, the second thing, um, this is just a funny thing in the Supreme Court, actually says how you should dress in the court. Um, <laughs> and it advises us to dress neatly and decently. If you want more advice on what to wear, ask the lawyer or prosecutor who requested you to be a witness. Um, <laughs> and, and so, it's the same thing. Like When you go to a court, right? You, you, you put on your best dress. You dress decently and neatly. And in, in the Bible, it also tells us in Job, it says, I put on righteousness and I was clothed with, with justice. Jesus says, let your good works shine before men. And it's an interesting correlation. It says, and they will see that and they will give glory to your Father in heaven. I think there's something powerful about the witness looking like his message. Um, the third thing, the, the court also says, uh, it tells you, it may be inconvenient for you to give evidence in court. For instance, you may need to get leave from work or get someone to look after the children. But your duty to be a witness is important. Well, the Bible ups the ante and this is like pretty intense. 
much more than inconvenience, I guess. The Bible actually tells us that being a witness will cost you dearly. And it says you will be delivered up, um, even by your, your closest relatives. And some of them, some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by everyone for my name's sake, but not a head. Uh, not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. It's kind of interesting that in the same passage, Jesus says, you will be put to death, but not a hair on your head will perish. <laughs> Sometimes I read this and I'm just like, hey, you've got to clarify yourself. Like, which is it? Uh, <laughs> but I think the last, the, last, the last statement gives us a clue that when he talks about um, gaining your lives, he talks about an eternal life. Um, and I think he quite means, he literally means that there will be martyrs for, for the witness which we see in, in church history. Um, and the final thing is this, it's very interesting. So I actually only learned this word because I watch Suits. It's this word called subpoena. Uh, <laughs> um, so the, the Supreme Court defines a subpoena as a written order by the court that a person has to attend court at a given date to give evidence as a witness. And it, it, unless the subpoena is set aside by the court, it is actually compulsory for you to attend court on the stipulated day until the case is completed. That's actually really interesting that when the highest authority gives you a charge to testify, it is compulsory for you to. And you must do it every day until the case is closed. Can I suggest that the case is not closed until it's prophesied in the Bible that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is the Lord. And the case is not completed. And so the subpoena is in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That charge still holds that it's compulsory for us to give witness until the case is closed. Yeah. So with that the preamble and understanding of what being a witness is, um, uh, I just want to give um, just a few points. To, and, I, and, I, and my hope is that it will just dismantle some of the lies and some of the obstacles that have been holding us back from being a witness. And the first is this. The first is that seeing qualifies us as witnesses. I think a lot of times we think that we need to have all the answers before we can testify of Christ. We need to become like, I don't know, some philosophy professor, trained in apologetics, reconcile all theological paradoxes, and we must be like the authority on truth. Like that person exists, except for Jesus anyway. Um, <clears throat> but that's called an expert witness. An expert witness has a specialist knowledge on a subject, and he comes. And we see expert witnesses here and there. We see like Ravi Zacharias, we see um, Spurgeon, maybe. You, you see um, Alistair McGrath. You see many noted apologists who go to universities and who debate the truth of the gospel. Those are expert witnesses. A lot of times we see that and say, hey, I can't do that, so I, I, I diam, diam. <laughs> but all of us are called to be witnesses. The fact that you've seen something qualifies you to be a witness. In fact, all the, the criminal lawyers will tell you that actually a lot of times the case is, is, is hung on the evidence of a witness. And this witness is often not an expert. This witness just happened to be there at the right time and saw something that no one else saw. And the question is, what have we seen that no one else has seen? Um, and I, this is an interesting correlation. This I believe that the more we behold God, the more compelling our witness will become. You see, if you're a witness and then you're a bit drunk and then it's at night and then you couldn't see anything, then like, you go to a court and a lawyer will shred you. You know, a lawyer will be like, you sure you saw that? And it's like, you know, um, 
when you when you see dimly your witness will be then you you cave at the stand. But if you knew what you saw, and you saw with clear sight, without a veil, your witness will be compelling. You'll be like, no, I saw that, and I know what I saw. And can I suggest that sometimes our witness is weak because we see dimly. Um, And the more we behold God, not only gives us the ability to be a compelling witness, but it actually gives us a responsibility. Um, So this is the first thing. As a Christian, if you've seen God, you are a qualified witness. Let the devil not take that right away from you. It's a lie that you are not qualified to witness for the gospel. Second point. We are called to witness and not to convert. And this is a subtle thing. Um, I don't think that we are supposed to be insurance salespeople. Marketing a post-death insurance where you pay a premium of 10% of your wage. Um, um, and then you, you, you accumulate uh, and you pay out the thing. And then in the trigger event where God is real, you receive a massive payout uh, in the form of cities and in the form of, I don't know, party. It's, it's not that. And actually, in my younger years, I had I, I, I adopted this approach. I was like this. I was like, I, I, I used to trap people with this dilemma. I was like, actually, if God is not real, right, you believe in him, you don't lose that much. Right? But then if he's real, then what? You strike it rich, you know. So then it's like, on the balance of probability, actually, you should just believe in God. Right? But, but no, um, that's not where we're called to market. Um, no one trusts, okay, sorry, insurance agents. No one trusts an insurance agent who is nice to you, who brings you out to coffee, who cares about your family, you know, um, because he wants you to buy into his product. You know what I mean? And sometimes the, that's what people can't stand about Christians. You get really like slimy because you think you're trying to sell some product and then you get a commission <laughs> selling That's good. <laughs> um, the sobering thing is this. So I've witnessed to a um, couple of people before. And um, I spent like, I remember for this person, I spent probably like two hours sharing the gospel with this person. And the person is like, um, I, I see what you're saying. But then I say, I have one final question. And the person's question was this. If what you're saying is true, why hasn't any Christian in my life shared the gospel with me before? Um, and it strikes to a, a truth, which is that the, the gospel necessitates us sharing it. If the gospel were true, we would share it. And to a, someone who's outside the system, who's non-Christian, look at it. If no one is sharing the gospel, then clearly it must be true. It's, it's so logical. Um, and um, I think sometimes we're doing not just um, ourselves a disfavor, we're doing other people a disfavor when we trip over our own fears and our own inadequacies. And we compromise everything to the evidence. The fact that even if you, you can't present the gospel brilliantly, the fact that you share the gospel with someone is itself evidence to its truth. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think we have the next slide. It's a parable of the sower. So Jesus is telling this um, parable of the sower. So the farmer is going out sowing seeds. 
is sowing seeds and then um, sowing seeds into the, the, the soil. And then several things happen. So like the bird comes and snatches up the seed. Um, some seed falls uh, among the thorns and then the, as it grows, the thorns choke it. Um, and then finally, the, the, some seed grows on good soil and then it becomes very fruitful. So the disciples ask Jesus, well, what does your parable mean? So um, this is what Jesus' explanation is. He says, the soul sows the seed. Um, some people are like seed along the path where the, where the word is sown. As they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that is sown to them. Sometimes I feel like Jesus is giving us a spiritual dissection. What's happening in the spirit realm when we share the gospel? A lot of times when we share the gospel to someone, right? Then the person doesn't believe, right? Okay, one of two things are the most common. First one is like, yeah, me, I lousy. I never share the gospel properly. Like, I cannot answer his question or I, I say something wrong, kind of thing. The second thing is, oh, it's him. It's like, he unrepentant. His heart is hard, <laughs> kind of thing. But there's, Jesus is saying that actually the primary reason, the primary reason why the seed doesn't embed in the soil of someone's heart is because there's a bird. There is the, there's an enemy, there's a prowling lion who's going around and his sole purpose, if, if any, is to fight against this seed being embedded in people's hearts. And so it's just completely incongruent for me to be sowing the seed, right? And then it's like, hey, it's not going to the seed because the bird is taking away. Then I scold the soil. Oi, soy, why you no take my seat? <laughs> but that's actually what some something's doing. Or, ah, my aim not good, that's why. <laughs> or even worse, I doubt the quality of the seat. Oh. Right. Um, and so sometimes I think we take too much credit um, in our role to, to, to aim the seat well. Um, but sometimes we can direct our attention instead of um, trying to, to witness in a very effective way, to actually warring in the spirit. In scripture it says we war against not flesh and blood, but principalities. There are actual principalities out there, blinding the eyes of people, stopping people from receiving um, the word. And if we could direct some of our energies to warring in the spirit, interceding for people, some of these walls would break down. Like people will become ready when there's no logical reason to and there are like so many instances. I remember when I was in university, um, I, I had this friend, and this, this friend was like um, quite a controversial figure. Um, so he, he, he like, he, you know, you watch How I Met Your Mother. Uh, it's like Barney Stinson. Uh, it's like this guy always in a suit, and then um, he's like, have it all together. Um, and uh, to me, when I first saw him, I was like, this guy is the furthest away from, from, from Jesus. It would be like so difficult to share the gospel with him. But I just felt the Lord impressed upon me to just pray for him. So I didn't share the gospel with him initially. I just started to pray for him. And as I was praying, I sensed breakthrough in the spirit. And on his 21st birthday, um, I was with him at the, the top floor of his apartment when he was like really drunk on vodka and puking into his sink. Um, <laughs> I was sharing the gospel with him. <laughs> um, but he puked until like he wasn't, he was kind of sober. Anyway, his alcohol tolerance is legendary. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, um, and suddenly it just opened up. And the most unlikely person, the person who I thought was the furthest away from the gospel, was so receptive for no logical reason. And I believe sometimes it's because when we bind the birds, the soul is just ready to receive the word. Yeah. Um, so yeah, 
um, the, the, the third point. Um, the third point is this. To witness is to be like Christ. Um, and actually, I, I don't pretend like I fully understand this point, but I'm just going to put it out there and then like maybe you guys can study further and just meditate on it. I think there's some truth to it. It's really strange. If you go to the next slide, um, the greetings in Revelation, that John the Revelator says, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and is to come. It's a very familiar um, description of the Almighty. And from the seven spirits who were before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. In Revelation 3, um, before um, the angel delivers the word of rebuke to the church of Laodicea, um, it writes, referring to Jesus, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. It is actually part of the character and the ministry of Jesus to be a faithful and true witness of the gospel. Jesus himself said that the reason he was born and came to the earth is to testify to the truth. He was a witness. And if we say that we want to be like Jesus, I think inadvertently we will become like witnesses. The second person um, is John the Baptist, but I like to call him John the Witness. Because where in scripture is this term John the Baptist anyway? Uh, <laughs> So John the Baptist is, by Jesus' own admission, the high watermark of anyone who was born of natural birth, born of women. He was a witness. Um, the Gospel of John says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And the message to which he bore witness is this, in verse 12. But to all who believed all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. Born not of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. That's the message to which he witnessed. My dream is to walk out faithfully the assignment that God gave me here on earth. The reason why I'm alive, that we are still alive and we haven't gone to be with Jesus, is that we still have an assignment here. We have work to do here on earth. And my dream is to, at the end of my life, not hear Jesus say, hey, go back, still got work to do. It's <laughs> to, say, it's to hear the same verdict, to say, good and faithful servant, come into my You have accomplished all that I have desired and set out for you to accomplish here on this earth. And John the Baptist is one of the people whom I believe accomplished everything that God had set out for him to accomplish. He was completely faithful. One of my favorite preachers, um, Lev Leonard Ravenhill, he describes John the Baptist as this. I'm not going to do his accent anymore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Here's a man with no financial backing, no program, the favor of nobody. He has the Roman army against him, the religious army of the Jews against him. The Pharisees are against him, the Sadducees are against him. He doesn't have any money. He doesn't have a miracle ministry. It says very clearly in scripture, John did no miracle. Nobody ran after him pleading, say, have mercy on my son, he's oppressed by, by the devil. Nobody cried, unclean, 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 open my eyes, I'm death. Nobody said that. He never unstopped deaf ears, he never opened blind eyes, he never cured a withered leg or a crippled arm. He didn't even raise a dead man, but he raised a dead nation. Single-handedly, he prepared, spiritually resurrected an Israel to prepare the way of the Messiah. 
It's, it's crazy. This guy, who is the high watermark of all prophets, I mean, he's, he's called the Elijah, right? Think about the miracles that Elijah did. This guy did zero miracles. Pentecostals today will be offended by this guy because he has no signs and wonders. They say signs and wonders will follow those who follow Jesus, right? Can I suggest that um, John fulfilled his calling primarily by being a faithful witness to Christ? It was all he ever did. All he ever did was go to the, to the desert and cry out and, and witness to Christ. There is one coming after me to whom I'm not worthy to untie even his sandals. I baptize you with water for the repentance of sin, but there's coming one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's all he ever said. <laughs> but he raised the dead nation with that one simple message, and he was completely faithful. Full score. Um, and how did he do it? And uh, it, it impressed me when I saw it. I was like, okay, how, do, how did John the Baptist, uh, when Jesus appeared, how did he point people to Christ? Because it's interesting, people saw John uh, as this, as this um, larger-than-life figure in Israel, and he attracted a huge following. Um, but it was when he was in his time, and it was um, just a really short period of ministry, he had to hand over the baton and say, it's the, it is the coming of Jesus' era now. I must decrease and he must increase. And he passes on. So if you look at the next slide, um, how did he do it? It's so simple. It's actually ridiculous. John is standing there with two of his disciples. And then Jesus walks past. He looks at Jesus as he walks past and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And then the disciples follow him. <laughs> That's the handover service. <laughs> then his disciples all go away. And then follow Jesus. Then he left alone <laughs> And then one, one witness leads to another. It's a ripple effect. So if you look at verse 40, then one of the two, so one of the two people who then followed Jesus um, from John the Baptist, um, heard him speak. So he went back to his brother, Simon Peter, found him, and just told him, we've found the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. That's it. One thing leads to another. You never know the person whom you bring to Christ, how many more people he will bring to Christ. And how many more people those people will bring to Christ. It is the chosen way that God has sovereignly mandated that his gospel be preached. And today the gospel is unstoppable. From 12 men to a few hundred in the upper room to billions today. And it will continue to expand until in Revelation it says that there I saw a multitude dressed in white, too numerous that no one could number. Dressed in white, who washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And it will continue until that is accomplished. We are on the winning side. <laughs> um, and, and the question is this. Um, in Luke 7, I love the King James for this. Jesus says, For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is no greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. It's one of those mind-boggling passages where we on this side of the, of, of, of the Pentecost, the kingdom of God, those born of the Spirit, not born of women, that the least among this age in the church, Jesus says, is greater than John the Baptist. I don't think we've fully understood how to live some of these verses out. Some of these verses, like Jesus said, in greater works you shall do. 
referring to his disciples, comparing it to his own miracle ministry. Um, I don't think we have fully grasped some of these things, but I think it gives us a peek and into a clue of the graciousness of God. And what it means when it says his kingdom proceeds from glory to glory, that if John the Baptist could witness about Christ in such a fashion, how much more can we? John the Baptist himself said this, God gives the spirit without measure. And sometimes I wonder, who is the limiting factor? Who is the limiting factor in this equation? Is it the sovereign outpouring of the spirit? the quality or the quantity of it, or is it our yieldedness to it? Wow. Yeah. Um, this, if you look at the next slide, in John 16, it's, one, a very, um, it's, it's a tough verse. In John 16, 12, Jesus pulls his disciples aside, and this is um, uh, shortly before he was about to be crucified. He says, I have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. When I read this, I have a kind of a sadness in my heart, a grief, because even his closest disciples didn't have the capacity to empathize with Jesus, to share the things which are on his heart. And I think many of us have felt that sometimes, that there was, imagine like there was something in your heart which you deeply cared about and which weighed on you, but no one else in the world cared. Everyone is like busy doing their own thing. And then like you meet for dinner and then you talk about it and the guy's like what you're weird kind of thing and, and I felt like Jesus understood that kind of loneliness here on earth with humans um, but the reason why I bring this up is a question it's a question to us as the church are we too preoccupied with my own programs my own ambitions my own fears my own stuff that I don't have the emotional capacity, the space to go up to Jesus and say, Lord, what's on your heart? What do you care about? And I think it's coming a time where the church will grow up to not just become children of God, that the Father loves us, and that it's about me, that the Father has good thoughts towards me, the Father has a good report towards me, to mature, to become sons and daughters of God in a way to say, Father, what's on your heart? I want to bless the heart of the Father. Um, I think there's a coming um, a kind of a martyr steel in the faith of the church that will come in the, in, the, in the later days where we would tap into the hard parts of God, that we would put aside our own stuff. We'll put aside our, even our own fears and insecurities. God's going to heal us of all of these things so we can be ready to be mature, to say, God, I'm ready to sacrifice for you. Yeah, you validated my worth by paying the highest price on the cross for me. And I'm going to validate the worth of your son by giving my life for you. Um, we're going to graduate, if you may, from that I am worth a lot thing to he's worth a lot. Yeah. Um, but there's hope. The burden of Christ is the privilege of the church. In the next verse, it says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus and take what is his and declare it to us. It's the immediate verse. He says, now you cannot take it, but there will come a time. That's why he says in John 16, it's to my benefit that I leave because the paraclete, the Holy Spirit will come and he will declare to you the truth. He will come to declare to us the things on the heart of God. And this is the thing that I'm referring to. There is a compassion and a love for the lost on the Lord's heart. 
that we do not have and we cannot manufacture. We cannot guilt trip ourselves or reason ourselves into a love for the lost. It is something that the Holy Spirit has to give us. And until he does that, we cannot bear it. There are things which are on his heart which we cannot bear until the Holy Spirit comes and divinely reveals it to us. And this is something that, how do we get it? I only know one way. Ask and you receive. That is the only way I know how to access things of God. He only gives by grace when we ask. There is no other way that we earn these things. And so it's the final, second, last point. (laughs) The fourth point is this. The Holy Spirit helps us in our witness. The amazing thing is that unlike in the court of law, when you go up there and it's you versus the prosecution lawyer, you actually have a witness. You have this person called an advocate. Um, And how does he help us in our witness? In the next slide, um, I think there are two primary ways in which um, he helps us. Can you go to the next slide, please? The two primary ways, the first is this. He convicts the hearts of men. In John 16, it says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convict the world of three things, of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. I think these three things are things which don't often get talked about in the dinner table. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Try bringing it one day on the dinner table. But it's absolutely critical. Sin, the mortal condition of humanity in our own fallenness, and the two only outcomes that can result Righteousness or judgment. It's either you are in faith in Christ and you have been hidden in his righteousness, righteousness imputed to you from Christ's atoning sacrifice, or you will face judgment. It's a truth that the Holy Spirit needs to convict people of. No no human can persuade another man of this. Trust me, I've tried. (laughs) Didn't go very well. But sometimes the Holy Spirit comes and people just know it. And it's an absolutely critical ingredient um, to our evangelism. The second thing, because I guess we're a good Pentecostal church, no, that's not the main reason, is that the Holy Spirit helps by displaying signs and wonders. It's important because it's in Scripture. And every time the preaching of the Word comes post-Pentecost, the Gospel has always been accompanied by signs and wonders. It's the proof of the pudding. It's a powerful gospel that the the apostles would say, Lord, stretch out your hand and perform signs and wonders. Validate the message that we preach of. We cannot do it. There are some things which only God can take credit for. And I love it when that happens. Where stuff happens and no one is right mind would think, "Ah, this guy, very good. It's clearly not of humans. It's of God. And when people see that, they would recognize the gospel as what it is, supernatural, from heaven. Um, And the final one is this, uh, the final point is this, we witness with our lives. This is some British uh, evangelist called Rodney Gypsy Smith. He once said this, he said there are five gospels, not the gospel of Judas. There are five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. Most people don't read the first four. Oftentimes, our lives are the only reflection of the gospel that most people have access to. And the question is, what's written on your life? 
we witness with our lives. Uh, I'm just going to share a few a few stories. We have time, right? We have a lot of time. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to share a few stories. When I was in my uh, my my final year of studies in US, um, the Lord had me research some of the revival history in the campus, and and you know there are many people who came um, to to New Haven in that time. Uh, Wesley, Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, so many people. But the one story which really struck me was this guy called William Borden. William Borden is, I don't think most people have heard of him. He like faded into obscurity. Um, For this reason, I'm going to read you his story. So he was born to a wealthy Chicago family in 1887. He was like really rich. Um, This was like in the 19th century, and as his high school graduation present, his parents gave him a round-the-world trip. These people are rich. Um, this is, <laughs> um, his 16-year-old born and goes on a, a trip around the world, and as he saw the suffering um, um, of the, the hungry, the hurting, and the loss, he determined in his heart that he wanted to be a missionary. He didn't want to live a comfortable life back um, in New Haven. He wanted to go up and, and share the gospel. So after university, he went to um, seminary to prepare for his mission work. Well, in seminary, he gave away all his personal wealth. And he just gave it away. And then his friend came up to him and expressed disbelief that Borden was throwing himself away, wasting his life as a missionary. But Borden understood that God sent his only son as a missionary to the earth, a missionary from heaven to reconcile the world to himself. So... He wrote on his diary, the, the, the revelation of God's extravagant love compelled him to write this on his diary. There's these two words, no reserves, after he gave away all his wealth. Later on, Borden felt that he was called to the Kansu people of China, and he determined that he would go there to preach the gospel. Just before he was due to sail the gospel to commence his missionary work, his father became deathly ill. His family pleaded with him to come back and take over the family business um, and not go to China. That was his final test, but he replied, I cannot. I'm committed now. There's no turning back. And on his Bible, he wrote, no retreat. No retreat. So he set out en route to China, and um, it's the 19th century, so it's a really long um, naval journey. And his ship stopped by in Egypt. In this seemingly intermediate pit stop, Borden contracted cerebral meningitis and he died within three weeks. He died in his pit stop. He never made it to China. All the talents, the wealth, the years of training seemingly wasted in tragic fashion. Borden's family went to Egypt to collect his belongings and they found his final entry in his Bible, presumably scribbled just before his death, No Regrets. No reserves, no retreat, no regrets. I believe that the revelation of the gospel would lead us to that place. The new stun a nation defying all worldly expectations of how a young man ought to live and die. In his biography, Mary Taylor wrote this, Borden not only gave away his wealth, but gave away himself in a way so joyous and so natural that it seemed like a privilege rather than a sacrifice. This was written on his gravestone that 
it's the final two it's, it's brilliant you can read it for yourself but I want to highlight the final two lines it says apart from Christ there is no explanation for such a life sometimes if we don't have the words to witness credibly for the gospel could we live a life that someone look at it and say apart from Christ there is no logical reason why he would live like that <clears throat> one of um, my the people whom I really look up to is this guy called Roland Baker um, probably everyone, most people are familiar with Heidi Baker. Um, Heidi and Rollins started their ministry, I think, in Hong Kong. And then um, they famously um, opened a newspaper and just was asking, where is the worst place on earth right now? Where the darkest, most broken place on earth where we can test the gospel. And they opened the, the, the newspaper and then it's like Mozambique, the failed state back in the day and then they went in and they're doing doing crazy things there and if you read Roland Baker's um, PhD thesis he writes about how his grandfather Harold H.A. Baker was an inspiration for him and his life marked Roland Baker since he was a young boy that he knew that he could do nothing else but to give his life for the gospel and his grandfather was a missionary in Tibet and he witnessed to the people in the Kado land in China And Roland Baker remembers going back to the place where his father would um, set up his ministry. And today that journey would take 10 hours by bus. And he says his grandfather would make that journey on foot with a walking stick. And to this day, Roland Baker has the walking stick shortened by about 8 inches or more. Just from the erosion of walking that journey to to, to preach the gospel. And Roland Baker writes this about his grandfather. He says he considered the cost of his mission a positive witness to his truth. He was glad of what befell him because he saw it as a song of God's grace to keep him, a melody of the worthiness of God to be adored in all circumstances. He felt that his song could not be sung with the same poignancy, sung from a life of unbroken leisure. He thought it was supremely worthwhile to testify of grace by his tears as much as by his ecstasies. There is something beautiful um, about people who give it all up. I believe those, those are some of the most powerful witnesses that reverberate through all of history. The testimonies of martyrs who refused to deny Christ all the way to when they were killed. Those are witnesses. They witness not with their words, but with their lives and with their deaths. And there is a special place um, for these people so, um, I want to share a few three um, applications which I felt has helped me. The first is this. So, this is just honest talk, right? Um, sometimes, I don't feel an urgency to share the gospel. I think that's just a reality. My heart is sometimes cold. I can sit there and I can talk about anything under the world and I don't feel a need to share the gospel, even though I feel like the person needs to hear it. And it's a hard issue. I just don't feel the need to. It would be forced for me to broach the topic. I feel like one of the things that we can do is reread the gospel. Sometimes the gospel, the content of the gospel, have become so cliché to people who have been in the faith for a long time that we kind of skip it over a bit. It's like, oh, John 3.16, skip. It's like, I go John 3.17, more advanced. People don't memorize that. Um, uh, <laughs> That 
I think that we need to reread the gospel and marinate ourselves, if you would, in the gospel until it starts to captivate us again. And I believe that one of the things that it does to our hearts when we're captivated by it is that there's a fire ignited in your heart that you want to witness. Um, there's this French guy. There's this French guy who said this. Um, I think his name's. I'm not going to try to pronounce his name. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry or something like that. He said, if you want to build a ship, don't call the workers together and chop timber and give out orders to build a ship. Teach them to long for the ocean. That you realize that I haven't taught anything about how to share the gospel. Like, like the actual mechanics, like sit down, it's like, like you know. Because what I hope is that the Holy Spirit would create in us a longing to see souls saved. And it, when you have the why settled in your heart and you are burning for it, the how comes naturally. Um, and I think that we get the why by rereading the gospel. Yeah. The second thing is this. Sometimes we don't know where to start. Like, I have a desire. I Sometimes I have desires and God impressed particular people in particular seasons and I, and I want to, to share the gospel with them. But you just don't have the opportunity um, and I don't want to like, like jut it in. We can start by interceding for them. Start by interceding for them. I think it gives us insight into what the Lord is doing to them and it actually changes things. It actually changes the hearts and the soil of people's hearts when we intercede for them. It will make your witness so much more effective. And the third is this, uh, this is a very practical one, that if you have a desire and people are open to listen to you, but people honestly have questions and doubts and objections to the faith, can I say this in the Pentecostal church, that there is completely okay to read up on apologetics, to read up on evangelist sermons, to study the Bible, <laughs> so that we can have we can give people a reason for the faith that we profess. It's in scripture. Um, that the spirit and the word, the sovereignty of God and the agency and hard work of men are not diametrically opposed. I love what John Piper said. He says, God does the miracle, but you act it. You lay the hands on someone, but God heals. Um, you pray and then God sends the breakthrough. But he in his sovereign um, being, he chooses to act through you. Um, so John Piper, he says this, he says, when you open the scripture, you must read the word, you must physically do the natural act of reading it, of looking at the words, understanding it and processing it in your brain. It's a natural act. But the revelation comes from God. It's still a supernatural act of reading the Bible. We must do both. And it's nothing wrong to mark the gospel, <laughs> to like study what are common objections that people have. People have issues about ethics, about hell, about the sovereignty of God, about the, the destiny of the unevangelized, some of these things which are difficult questions. But scholars have devoted years of their, of their lives to research these so that we can have access to at least give people a credible response, so that we can take apart some of these intellectual obstacles, which at the end of the day get to the heart issue. Yeah. Yeah. And 
I, for one, think that it's, it has been really useful. Yeah. So we, we, have, we, we combine all these toolkits, the natural, the study, the supernatural, the intercession, and actually sharing the gospel when we have an opportunity to. I think we are going to see an explosion of soul safe. Yeah, yeah so uh, that's, that's all I have. <laughs> uh, can we stand? Can we stand? And, Like, so, like, the three things which I was sharing, right, it's kind of like homework, right? This is a message which challenges me personally as well, and it also gives me homework. It's not a message where you walk away and then not do anything about it. It's like a feel-good sermon. It has an obligation, it places an obligation on all of us. But I think that the Lord has something for us here today as well. And these are two things which I think that you can ask God for. The first um, is this thing called burden transfer. In 2 Peter, it says that God desires none should perish, but all to come to faith in Him. The Lord is delaying the coming of His return. The Lord is not slow in His coming. He's delaying it so that more people can come to faith in Him. He is willing to delay the culmination of all things, the coming of justice, the culmination of, of His grand master plan in salvation so that more can come to faith in Him. There is a burden on the heart of God for this. And I believe that, um, I, I, it works for me. Um, when I pray, God, take away the burdens on my heart. I think some people here are struggling with, um, with just stuff in your life. And um, it's like when you hear this sermon, it's like, uh, I can't even keep it together by myself in my life. And like you're giving me this high challenge message. And it's, it's the last thing that I'm thinking about because my heart is, is heavy. It's filled with things. I feel like that there is a grace for the Lord to say, I'm, I'm going to take away your burdens. I'm going to lift off the heavy yoke that is upon you. But do you want mine? And the, and the second thing which I think that we can pray for as we pray for the boldness of the Lord, the anointing. There is actual anointing that changes things actual anointing where it was said that Charles Finney he will walk into a factory and people will just start weeping there, there is tangible physical anointing almost um, which changes the atmosphere and breaks the, the obstacles to the gospel and I believe that it, it comes from God and it comes to those who ask it comes to those who sanctify themselves for it but if we ask he will give it yeah so um if, if anyone wants to respond to any of these, I believe that um, it has been the desire of many people, but you feel like you lack this. Either you lack um, the, the urgency in your heart, or you lack the bonus and the anointing to preach the gospel. I'll invite you to just come forward. You have the leaders uh, and the ministry team just pray for you.